Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the independent media and politics podcast. Where I'm joined for a, for a midweek cast by two teachers out of Wellington. We've been seeing a lot of back and forth, even just in the last week, about what's happening at the Ministry of Health and with the Ministry of Education around COVID restrictions uh, and COVID guidance. We've even just recently seen today uh, some news out of Ready New Zealand. Uh, from John Gerritsen, I think, about what's happening in schools uh, and the number of teachers that uh, are suffering under these conditions. I'm joined by Adam um, from The Hut. Lower Hut, that's the one. Uh, and Pedagogy um, from Porerua. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Yeah, howdy. Thanks for having us. So... Adam, you've you've been on before. Our audience uh, will will know you um, from a previous podcast that we recorded prior to some of the restrictions being relaxed um, as the school year was beginning. Uh, you mm-hmm. were on the podcast with Ross talking about your your worries, uh, your fears uh, about what some of the ministry guidance uh, and and policy was going to mean for you and your students a lot of that seems to have come to pass yeah it's um it's an upsetting thing to be a little bit of a prophet and then see what you're crying in the wilderness about come to pass and not be able to do anything about it um so you know we we talked about the quality of the guidance that we got before the change to orange we talked about the quality of interventions uh, that schools were supposed to put in place if they had um, cases. We talked about what we thought might happen, and it was a pretty bleak picture, if I'm honest. I didn't walk away happy. I walked away um, more concerned than ever. Unfortunately, what what has, you know, it has come to pass. It has come to pass. Term one was diabolical. We had um, huge impacts on children, uh, on, on the teenagers in our care. Um, we had a large number of staff um, taken out and temporarily, of course, because they were told to come back in, you know, after about seven days, whatever it was, uh, regardless of whether they were getting a positive or a negative rat test back. And so here we are a little while later, starting to see the impact, not just of COVID, but of winter illnesses and other normal school things that take teachers out of school. So the picture now is really messy really really messy so you know i i'd love to go into some of that i'd love to talk about some of that but it's you know that's it's 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 not something that um schools can fix um i just want to get that out the gate straight away the the things that are happening in schools are not something that schools have the resources to solve yeah absolutely and we need we need some help and I, i want to get that out of the gate straight away so that if anyone listens for the first five minutes of this, they get that point and they go away going, holy shit, I need to talk to someone about this and I need to make demands of government to step up and step in and do something here because uh, it, it's broken. We are we are broken at the moment. And just for people who didn't, uh, who weren't yet able to listen to that episode, Adam, do you want to just give a quick um, intro to, to where you come from? Um, Sure, and, and your teaching experience straight, in, straight into the rant no good um, good <laughs> well, I've, I've been in the business for and this is my 11th year um i teach in a decile three school in wellington um i am a social science teacher 
Um, I've, you know, I've, I'm not born and raised in the hut, but born and raised in Wellington and love teaching. Love the process of building relationships with teenagers, in my case. Um, love the process of building relationships with their family, trying to dig into what these kids want, what they need, what their aspirations are, and then and then guiding where I can as a dean. I was a dean for four years in pastoral care, so guiding them along the way and also you know actually teaching them, so passing on skills and knowledge and helping them generate their own kete of things that they can do in the world. So there you know that's me pr- pretty simply, and I love the I love the school that I'm in. And part of the reason I want to speak out on this is because of that love, because of that appreciation that I have for the community I work in. And it's partly because I care about the profession and I care about what's happening to teachers. So I'm probably one of the lucky ones. I've, uh, well, I've had COVID. I got it term one. Um, I call myself a lucky one because I wasn't taken out by it. But I'm a lucky one in that I have a support network around me that I think lots of young teachers may not have. Mm. Um, and it, uh, my heart is 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 sore for the people who um, are seeing teaching for the first time through the eyes of a new teacher and just going, why the heck would I want to stay in this business? Why would I want to do this, given how we're being treated? So, yeah, that's me. For, for those who haven't met me before, that's that's who I am. That's why I care. And pedagogy, your first time with us, uh, just for our audiences. Um, Benefit, uh, where do you come from? What are you, what are you currently doing? Yeah, so um, I've only been a teacher for a mere nearly two years now. Um, so quite a baby compared to the venerable Adam. Um, <laughs> I originally come from Hawke's Bay. My actual path into teaching was a little bit fraught. I spent about 13 years in hospo starting when i was in high school and i kind of weirdly enough i only managed to actually get my first role teaching during um the pandemic just after that first lockdown before then uh because i'd had the i'd had the qualification for a couple years and i just i couldn't get a job in wellington um where i'm sort of tied to but i managed to to get that role and much like adam i absolutely love the school that i'm in uh, I thought things were pretty tough when I was coming in just after this first lockdown and students were reintegrating back into school life after being at home for however many odd weeks that were away, I've forgotten. <laughs> mm. And last year was really great for me as a teacher. I got to, I got to, I got to do a lot of um, co-curricular projects. Um, I, I was given a lot of freedom and a lot of support in doing that and I really managed to expand the horizons of students in our school uh, in terms of like what's achievable at school or around school or after school and this year has just this year is so different it's such a step up in terms of the intensity and in terms of the pressure that all teachers are feeling and much like Adam and from a sort of a closer perspective because I'm in the I'm in the sort of like uh, so there's PCTs are sort of like a practicing certificate teachers. Um, so they're like the new, the baby teachers. The My um, co-workers who are just entering the profession are getting absolutely hammered. And yeah, it really breaks my heart. And um, Arisa, uh, kind of uh, giving too much away, what, what year level are you working at? What year level? Hmm. As in like high school? 
Yeah, yeah. Are you high school or? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I'm 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 a high school high school teacher. I do um, social studies and thankfully history as well. I've recently managed to secure that. Yeah, and I'm working with ju- juniors through seniors, so year nine through year twelve currently. Fantastic. So, when we spoke three months ago, really wasn't it, Adam? One of the things that we really dug into was this ministry of education approach to pushing any health framework back onto the schools under the guise of, you know what's best for your communities, so you should design and uh, implement that yourselves, Uh, you know, whether that's under the board or under the teaching staff or the principal. And the risk that both you and Ross brought up at the time was that teachers aren't public health uh, <laughs> specialists. Um, yep. Neither uh, are principals and neither are boards. Yeah. Uh, as we've clearly found out. Um, so, you know, if I can jump in there, it, it was obvious at the time that teachers are good at teaching. They're not good at putting in place or they're not trained in putting in place public health measures. We are really reactive and we're really good at following instructions. <laughs> it's something that it's something that frankly is part of the the cope up in most schools is you know the idea that teachers are really good at making sure shit gets done. And so, you know, one one of the things that we we did when lockdowns happened was we did digital learning. We quickly dropped some one set of tools, picked up another set of tools. Some schools were better placed to do that than others, depending on some different inputs and outputs and equity issues and and how many laptops are around and that kind of thing. We redesigned our curriculum to better fit in with digital learning. Um, we did that for two years. Well, we did that for, yeah, no, we, we did that for two years to ensure that we were essentially running a parallel system that meant that if we had to go back into lockdown or back into kids working from home, we had the material ready and we had our skills honed and kids knew what to do. And we know we knew what to do, even in a little decile three school like mine. Incredibly proud of our efforts there and incredibly chuffed with our results. But where we're at now is essentially tomorrow's schools from the 1984 reforms of the education system coming home to roost. We have decentralized education to the point where boards of trustees and principals are the final word on health and safety in a school and the final word on ensuring that their staff are not suffering too greatly, uh, have the interventions in place or the strategies in place to protect them from various threats, be they physical or mental or emotional. And the failure of that system is um, apparent. Different teachers that I've talked to from different schools around the country are getting very different messages from their boards and their uh, senior leadership teams than mine. We've got schools in one part of the country able to put in place things quite quickly to send kids home to relieve pressure on teachers and on the school system, which is buckling under the need for relievers who don't exist. And we've got others who seem to be looking around, wanting to find someone in their local vicinity who's going to jump first into what they consider failure. So so I'll just be frank with you. I think that many principals and senior management teams think that sending a bunch of kids home 
is a sign of failure. They think that changing things from the status quo is an indicator that the school isn't being managed well. And I want to counter that argument and say, no, when I look at schools that are taking a proactive response to extreme pressures on the teaching resource that the school has and that the school can bring in in the form of relievers, right? Those schools, those management teams that are proactive in that regard, they are absolute champions. They should be commended. Um, They should be listened to. They should be held up as, as models for how we do things in the age of COVID. Instead, We've got, we've got principals and others who are looking around and saying, in my local area, I will not do anything until I see other people doing something. So <laughs> in the case of a school I know about, they are being badly affected by COVID. They've got teachers out up the wazoo. They are really struggling to provide relief teachers, which means that teachers are teaching more hours than they should be. They're getting exhausted by the work requirements that they're being put under. I'm talking about having 12 teachers out of a school and only being able to find two relievers, which puts all of the teaching spells from those 10 leftover staff who are out onto the existing staff of that school. And they won't do anything until they see people in their area, as if that has any relevance, taking steps people are scared of being the first to jump or the first to lead and i'm i'm really concerned about that because what it what it's evidence of is fear being the main motivator of leadership or fear being the main motivator for decisions as opposed to courage and care being the main motivators of school leadership I'm asking principals across the country and I'm asking the boards of trustees who have influence here to be courageous and to lead with care and understand that right now might be the best time, if you haven't already done it, right now might be the best time to to relieve some pressure. Find out, figure out, talk to your staff, what would help, what would be workable, what can we do, and just go away and do it. You don't have time to muck around and you don't have time to to waffle. It must be done. It must be done now because people are, people are actively pursuing ways to get out of the teaching profession. Yeah. And good teachers, and I'll let pedagogy speak on this because I know he's got something to say, but Good teachers, good young teachers, good old teachers, effective people, people who love our kids and want the best for them and work their asses off, they are done. They are cooked and they need, they need, we need triage now. The body is bleeding. Get a tourniquet on it. You know, don't, don't just stand there and go, what are you doing with your patient over there? Have you, have you made a decision yet? No, neither me. I haven't, I haven't made a decision. Make a decision. Do something because we can't keep going on like this. Yeah, um, definitely a hard agree on that from me. No no contention. Yeah, I think that there does seem to be a real fear among the, 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 the school leaderships that I've observed to, to not go beyond the like minimum requirements the ministry puts out or yep. if, if it's a recommendation, ignore it. It's, it's just a recommendation. You don't have to do it. 
um, something that I saw just not just from kids from my school, but kids from a few schools in the area shortly after um, the switch to orange, um, especially after term two, um, masking just dropped. It was universal before and it wasn't contentious. No. It wasn't contentious. No one was fighting it. And now it's just it's just getting laxer and laxer. And there's and the thing the thing that's kind of a bit heartbreaking about it is there are people who are still masking rigorously and you know it's because there's someone in their life that they care about who's high risk and they just they're sort of getting like no support there's no like you know distancing um no requirements for other people around them to mask and they've just they can't stay away from school i know there are some students who are just being kept away from school yeah it's it's pretty rough um and on to just just the general teaching fatigue i mean with how tight the job market has become there are so many teachers giving the side eye to admin jobs to other sorts of office jobs to stuff outside of the profession it's 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 a hard job in the best of times and this is the very worst of times and we're getting less support yeah which is the thing that's just mind-boggling because it was really heartening as as a very fresh teacher when we went into that second lockdown because it was like oh we're taking this seriously um we are actually going to look after our kids because i was following um you know what was happening in the united states and in europe and schools and it's miserable and it's the, the ruining the lives of these children ruining the lives of their teachers and we, we knew it was going to happen if this came out and it's not like a prophecy or anything like that it was just yeah we'll just let it happen it's we okay i, okay, I can't yeah pedagogy's pedagogy's bang on here like we could see it and we saw it in classrooms in new york we saw it in classrooms um in london we saw it across the world um where countries gave in early um we didn't we fought hard and we could have kept fighting at the point that uh that masks were removed as a mandate in my classroom i had 100 percent compliance you know like and it wasn't even hard anymore it was just like hey man you're missing a mask would you like one and we just go to the filing cabinet pull out a box of masks and hand a kid a mask it's not hard and the kids were complying and the kids were mostly happy yeah every lesson there might have been a couple of moments we'd have to remind a kid that their nose constitutes an airway and they need to cover it up. But like, <laughs> it's, it's not, um, you know, it's not rocket science that that could have continued. It absolutely could have continued. And the removal of it led to a massive wave. We know that. Um, and it's leading to sick kids. And it's deeply upsetting to see the effect it's having on them. I've got this mm. wonderful kid in my year 12 class who I've watched grow up from this wee skinny guy who is is coming into his intelligence and is coming into his understanding of the world and is learning so much about what matters and is developing his understanding um so well and and he's not just a you know he's he's now flying Mm. you know grabbing excellences and, and and smashing things but he caught COVID at the start of term two and at first I didn't know that and I was looking at this kid and going, oh, I need to have a conversation with him. He's gone, he's gone straight down. 
Yeah. He's he's nowhere near as productive as he was. He's not asking questions anymore. He's not raising things that he doesn't understand and getting feedback and and moving on from there. And it was heartbreaking to realize that that was the effect of COVID on him. Mm. And yet this is what we've done to our kids. We've and 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 what upsets me is not I mean, it does upset me that kids are getting COVID, but what upsets me is is we've basically given up on them. We've basically given up on these kids and we've said, the, the government has said, here are some recommendations, but they've said, but they aren't requirements. And the simple act of saying they're not requirements means that in a busy job with heck pressure, like with a ton of pressure to do a million things, people start to drop the ball. And what I saw happen at my, at, in my environment was a very slow, but now very rapid dropping of the ball around student safety in the classroom. Well, I think one um, of the other things which like, is not often mentioned is not only does it lead to the slow change in behaviours, but there's a psychological effect of something being a requirement rather than a recommendation where people either actively or passively go, oh, well, if it's not required, then we must be safe, right? Yeah. Because, yeah. because yeah. if it was dangerous... They'd be they'd be one hundred percent mask mandates. Yep. yep. And while that was the case, people were like, okay, cool, I'm wearing a mask, easy, like not hard to do. But yep. why would why would you wear a mask all the time if it's not going to hurt you? Yeah. You know, that's right. if there's no if there's no real risk, and it's that change in the 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 comms, the change in the uh, advice from the ministries, that's just, and and we know it's not true. We know it's absolutely incorrect. Um, we know of the risks of this disease. We know what it's. We know what point A was where people weren't sick and people were following public health measures, and we yeah. know what point B today is where people are sick and less people are following <laughs> public health measures. For you know, yeah. which is just incredible um, as a, a statement of affairs. Where do you think? I don't even actually. I don't even know what to ask in, in that particular case. I mean, if the question is where did this where did this come from, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I, I'm I'm confounded by the thinking at government level. Um, we know we have a we know we have a Ministry of Health that could be informed by good science, and has decided not to be. That's certainly the way it looks to me. We know that the Ministry of Health today released one bit of information saying that um saying something along the lines of you're still highly infectious after your seven days and if you're taking a rat test and it's positive you're infectious and then they retracted that mm. um, very quickly I really fucking it, cried eh? it just you know like, yeah. and, and it's like oh no we're gonna tell you the truth oh shit the truth means everything we've been saying so far has been incorrect and has been anti the science of this whole deal and so I don't know where uh, I don't know how the decisions were made to reach where we are. I have a um, I've got a wonderful father-in-law um, <laughs> up, up in the. Uh, I'm lucky. I've got this amazing. You know, he's a good guy, Earl. And he, you know, his thinking on this is that Labor saw the parliamentary occupation and a few other things in the community, and they have they have overreacted to a tiny fragment of the New Zealand population throwing a fit. 
instead of modulating or moderating or you know moving policies slightly they have um undercut undercut the whole response mm. um and you know his take is that you know they'd lost the polit- they'd spent all their political cap capital now, i don't necessarily agree with that but um i agree with the first statement that i think they got freaked out they had an ineffective um, at first, what looked like a very ineffective police and security response to the threat of oh, QAnon and nationalist-inspired yeah. uh, conspiracy theorist, quasi-fascist um, occupiers. You know, that's my take. They they over they saw that they didn't they didn't have an easy response to that. I think that Costa got it under control eventually, but not until the government had essentially lost its bottle and Mm. i um i'm asking the government to get its courage back um you know and to look at itself in the mirror particularly chippy particularly chris hipkins um as a minister both of the covid response and and education at the same time i number one i think that's too heavy a load to carry um for any minister and i think those should be two different roles I think there's conflict between those two different roles politically. Yeah. Um, the things that teachers and the education system need uh, is one set of uh, of uh, outcomes, and what uh, he's decided or P- cabinet has decided that the COVID response needs to be is actually in conflict now with his mm-hmm. other role as the minister of the minister of education. Um, but I think he's lost it. I saw um, a series of photos the other day from him visiting a school being amongst children at that school, talking to teachers at that school, being very close to them and not wearing a mask. Yeah. And I, st- I I saw that and I went, there you go. This is a guy who is doing this for one of two reasons. Number one, he doesn't think there's a threat. He doesn't think it's a big deal. He's okay with it. Number two, the only other option, if the first one is not true, is this is political he wants the photos from the school yeah. trip yeah. to show him without a mask. It's like having a sip of the poisoned water in, in the river, right? Like, yeah. mm, this water is delicious. No, oh, it's fracking water. Yeah, let's go. Um, and, and I just saw that and I went, this is an issue. And I don't think it's an issue that um, that that can wait much longer to be dealt with. Yeah, it's it, it's funny. I mean, you, you, you kind of got lost on your question there about where do you go when you can see so much conflict between what should be reality and what is reality in front of you, and you're saying, where, how do we <laughs> move yeah. on? Why? And how are we going to get to a place that, you know, where people aren't um, being exposed on a daily, hourly, minute basis yeah. to, to um, the risk assessment skills of teenagers. So, and, and that's, that, that's the framework I want to I want to also speak to is that by decentralizing this response by giving it to schools and saying schools can define this mm. and also saying to families you can decide it and saying to teenagers you can decide it that's actually where the buck stops the buck stops at a kid yeah and I <laughs> we're having all these conversations in society at the moment about whether 16 year olds should be trusted to vote mm. and things like that. And and I can absolutely see some of the um, the value behind those arguments, and I can see, uh, generally speaking, I'm an advocate for increased uh, electoral power for the young, 
However, on this issue of looking after themselves and looking after their peers, I think teenagers have got a, um, in fact, I think the science shows that, that teenagers do not have the risk assessment skills of people who have exited their teens, got to about 25 and started to, um, and had a mature, a mature brain. And so I, I'm really concerned that that's where we've ended up. We've ended up putting our pandemic response in the hands of 13 and 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, and 18-year-olds. Well, only it's, as a result of constant, a consistent uh, pattern of delegation, though, right? Um, you know, it, yeah, it, it's like it could have stopped um, at the ministry. It yep. could have stopped at um, the teachers' council. It could have stopped at the board of trustees. It could have stopped at the principal. At every one of these points, it could have stopped. But instead, it's um, each of your individual children should do what you feel is best for your health at the same time as you know being in a school environment and doing exams and learning at the same time mm-hmm. uh, as dealing with a global pandemic. As, as a society, mm. um, at the same time, as we're not going to offer you any framework for that, we're not going to buy you masks and give them to yep. you. We're not, like, are you going to get a whole classroom of kids are, to crowdfund and are we buy getting into this? Okay, <laughs> are we getting into this? I mean, like, the government's response around, you know, uh, risk mitigation strategies for the classroom is laughable. Um, we've been give, we've been given some funding, right? Schools have been given some funding for health and safety stuff. That's pretty. It's 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 basically limited to limited to like buy some surgical masks. That's essentially yep. all it's bought us. And those boxes of surgical masks get put in our pigeonholes in our little staff room, and we go, yay, that's going to keep me safe for half an hour because you know when you actually take a look at the stats for how long a surgical mask protects yeah. you for, it's about half an hour. You got a box. I got a box, mate. Sorry, oh, people, I got a box. <laughs> um, and again, so wait, what did you just hear? You just heard that two schools who who are only let's get this who are in neighbouring cities in a region have got different COVID responses and different protections being given to their teachers. Yep. This is how cooked it is. We we get funded from the same place. We are essentially serving the same government department, but. The decisions being made at pedagogy school and the, the the decisions being made at my school, both of them, I would suggest, uh, may not be great, but they're different. Okay, mm-hmm. so pedagogy, what did you get given? We got initially. We did not get many masks, but I think that was due to shortage. Uh, I'm not going to go into the specifics of that. Yeah. Um, but we eventually started getting regularly, sort of like one box of masks to share between. Um, a whole group of teachers um, and students. But over time, as those mask shortages came down, we did sort of get enough masks for everyone. But that was right at the start of the year. And the big question for me then was, why didn't we just delay the start of the year? If we no- if, if, if it was known that there wasn't enough PPE to operate at the, at what, at the time was a ministry requirement, why did we even start? But I know that's a... Old conversation. I just wanted to quickly go back to the where did this all come from? Because I've got mm. my own little theory. Go on. I think it came down to, if not a 
absolute, maybe a perception that elimination was an unsustainable strategy. And so our government was attempting to square the circle of, well, we can't do elimination forever, but our health response, which has been very, it was up until that point, very focused on keeping the community free of COVID, had to be adapted to this new, well, everyone's going to get it kind of thing. And uh, what, you, what you were saying about political capital, I think that's where a lot of the political capital for sort of instituting new measures, I, maybe not even was left, but has been believed to have been spent. And so I think the government's now operating in this, the space where they believe, well, you know, we can't go back to elimination. We can't go back to instituting these uh, health-focused measures, but we also can't, like, we've got to, we've got to stay the line, mm. I guess. Like, and that's where that Ministry of Health, like, weird little mess up comes in. I think at the moment, they're not even necessarily prioritizing um, one narrative or the other. They're prioritizing being consistent at the expense of a lot of things. I hope that made sense. It did, yeah. Okay, just before we get into, um, you know, some of the the current mitigations or or health measures that you're experiencing, can I get a a rundown, maybe starting with you, pedagogy, of the the state of uh, of your school uh, in terms of uh, amount of how many students are out, how many teachers are out, uh, and and what the, the pressures are, because... We saw just in the last couple of days um, some really good modelling uh, by or data um, communication by David Hood, showing the ways in which for the for the population at large, it's about eleven out of every thousand adults um, That's right. are, are catching COVID, uh, but for teachers it's sixteen to seventeen. Uh, so that's a that's a significant difference. Um, what what are you experiencing on the ground, pedagogy? So our school is currently going through their second, our second kind of big COVID wave. Our first one was in the first term. Um, there are sort of several teachers out from COVID, but they're on, the understanding is seven days and then you're back, unless you've got severe symptoms. That's sort of like the understanding. And I know a lot of teachers are sort of, a lot of, a lot of that is self-imposed by the teachers. Um, our leadership is very, generous when it comes to staff needing time off because it's very high pressure at the moment well it's usually generally very high pressure but even more high pressure the relief situation is i honestly don't even want to describe it um the relief situation is there is no relief so teachers are just taking on extra periods i yeah i'm, I'm not privy to the financials but i imagine it's not uh, rosy um I, I saw one school they've already spent their relief budget for the year and they're not even through term two. Um, I imagine we're probably on track for that as well. In terms of students, this has sort of been, and this is one of the like the longer term effects of COVID that I think we're not really going to be able to map until years after. Um, but our, our attendance has already been shot by, by the lockdowns. It, go, it sort of goes back that long, but it's better now, weirdly, than it was at the end of last year, but it's like a lot spottier. There's maybe 25% of students, I want to say, are somewhat regularly coming in, um, and then 75, whether that's um, because they're moving around with families or they've got events to help out with, um, which is usual, but also like you can definitely feel that like COVID and the 
the like pressures from that are coming out. And the school's doing the school's doing an absolutely brain meltingly good job of trying to support all those families. But we've only got so many resources. We've only got so many teachers. And yeah, <laughs> running on fumes, I think, would be a succinct description. And how much of your uh, I guess general teaching staff do do you have on a, any given week? Was all right at the start of the term, um, but now that we're starting to get into those winter ailments times, I think we're about 20, 25% out ish. How about you, Adam? Where, where is your school at? Hmm, good question. I'll start with staffing. So I posted the other day a photograph of our relief board, and you know, we had 12 names up there, or 12 codes rather, and the majority of the the spaces underneath that that were were filled with other codes to say who was covering that class were in blue um, and what that means if it's in blue it's a teacher covering a teacher so it's internal cover it's people working outside their contract and further loading themselves up or being loaded up with some regard for their health but they largely don't have a choice about these kinds of things um, to cope with that we will have out on any given day between um seven and 12 and, and 12 seven and 10 seven and 12 teachers and for us that's that's a quarter you know 20 percent to a quarter that's 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 a whack man when you lose that many staff things just start to fall over and i think i don't, i think what um what people don't realize is in, in secondary schools and lots of education settings you know relationships are the core of things and when people are missing from the chalk face when people are missing from classrooms yeah. When the people that kids have relationships with and understandings with are not there, those kids don't have the support network. They don't have the teachers who know them and they don't have the the teacher in front of them who knows their foibles and their things that they get racked up at and helps them uh, de-escalate situations or yeah. helps them deal with conflict in the classroom, helps them deal with what they're feeling from home. Um, helps them cope with the pressures of life as a um, 15-year-old working to help contribute to the family's overheads um, so that they can, you know, get through get through winter with the added, you know, heating costs or food costs or um, um, inflation that's, that's happening right now. So it, it's almost like people don't understand that when you lose a staff member and then you replace them with a reliever, it's not like for like. It's not apples for for apples. Mm. It's um. It frankly, it's a very. It's often a very poor substitute. You do you do find every now and then that there's a relief teacher who can very quickly build rapport, but it's they're yeah. they're few yeah. and far between. You no, know? no shade so, on relief teachers, yeah. by the no, way. No, 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 none whatsoever. <laughs> and, and so no one's over. Oh my god, we need them like you wouldn't believe. But it's just that when you've spent several years working with a student, you know them. They know yeah. you, and there's trust, and and that trust is not not in existence when someone new walks into the room. And so the effects of 20 to 25% of your staff being out is that shit pops off. Like you will have incidences of things that you would not have otherwise. And those things can be conflict-based. They can be relationship-based. They can be... Yeah. A kid literally going off, just actually exiting the building because they're just the person that makes them settled, the person who helps them decompress or whatever they need is not there. And so 
it's not as simple as just to say, oh, we don't have enough teachers. It's, it's we don't have enough teachers. And that means stuff happens that wouldn't otherwise happen. And so, yeah. so that's the, that's the teaching from a numbers perspective. The teaching from a workload perspective is, is the, is another really bad element. We've got people just being worked to within an inch of their lives. They then become overcome by um, stress and other things. They become a statistic that then gets entered into the um, into the equation, and they um you know they go off um, sick themselves, or they soldier on and then have a failure of some kind at some stage. And that's what I'm hoping that we step in and deal with this. We we deal with this problem because I, what I'm most concerned about is um is the people who simply simply can't cope anymore and decide that they just want out. Mm. In terms of student attendance, uh, probably a moderately similar story to pedagogies. We we have a significant chunk of our kids um, not attending, but the way it works is much like pedagogy described, it's spotty. And um, Claire Amos, one of the principals from Auckland, was on Radio New Zealand the other day, and she said, or yesterday, and she said that what they're seeing is an absolute loss of traction in learning because mm. uh, I can be out as a teacher and then the very next day, uh, th- that same day that I'm out is the day that a kid finally came back, <laughs> yep. you know, and then, yep. and it's so we're missing each other. We are ships in the night sailing mm. past each other without any knowledge of where we are and and no relaying of relationship, no relaying of progress, no no catch-up time, no ability to resolve things. I'm using, um, I use lots of tools, um, IT tools to track things at school and that kind of thing. But I, and, and I have a Excel spreadsheet that does my head in because yeah. it tracks where my senior history kids are at in this massive project they're doing. And the reality is that it's, it's a hugely mixed um, bag. It's really hard. You cover stuff with one group of kids. It's most of the class. You then have to cover it again with another group that come back in the next two days. Then you've got to do it again and two days after that because that other group came back. In the meantime, the first group who were present are no longer present. And so, you know, you're having to deal with it again. And so the normal practice of sequenced learning is breaking down in some school environments and in some classes because of this. It's just, of course it does, right? If people aren't there, how can they learn? I'm not Um, advocating specifically for this, but at least when you were like teaching uh, over Zoom, you could put all your energy into that uh, and you'd have this consistent track of learning, but you can't do that and build a digital curriculum for your students alongside doing the in-person stuff as well, right? <laughs> well, no, well, and we were told. And we were, we told. were told to do we that, were told yeah. Not, yeah, well, I, oh, I, got, I, don't you, I don't know what you were told, and this is a problem, right? <laughs> yeah. Different different, yeah. But I was told that the ministry had made it clear under advisement from the PPTA, and this is on the PPTA website, that um, teachers were not to be expected to be developing parallel curriculum, digital and in-person. <laughs> yes. That was from the PPTA, and the ministry said, yeah, that's yeah, that's relevant. Yep. But what do you do if you're a school that deeply cares about the, the academic progress of your kids and what they're learning? Do you then do what I don't, I'm assuming pedagogy school did? Do you want to tell us what they did? I... So we gave it a good college try. Um, oh. I will be honest and I'll say that probably a lot of the issue was the um, 
sort so, sort of socioeconomic issues around devices and so forth. But what we attempted was hybrid learning. Um, so not teaching online, not teaching in person, but sort of assigning work um, digitally and teaching what you could in the classroom and if possible sort of recording that teaching and then uploading it afterwards did not i think it's largely been dropped at this point <laughs> it's um, so hard but it's like totally but, like what you'd expect when there's no guidance right yeah um but also going back to relief one thing and i'm really sorry adam if you did talk about this but one thing about relief is it's super stressful for the teacher who's assigning relief oh it's diabolical who, is out of that classroom because you know that oh I, I had to catch up with so and so to talk about this and so and so is working on this for the essay i really need to give them this book that i've got and even one day can be so much and so um for me personally i'm involved in a lot of co-curriculars um i help out with some i help some kids with their writing i help out with the basketball team um i do some stuff around gaming um, there's also like a Warhammer thing going on that I'm involved with. One day out and something like that, there's a whole week's progress lost. Yeah. Um, thankfully, with basketball, we've got a huge coaching staff, so I'm not I will, too worried about that. But <laughs> I, I, I will add to that, to the picture here, that this is a secondary school environment, and so different schools operate differently. But one big difference between primary and secondary environments is the expectation in a primary setting is the reliever comes in with their own kitty of things they can do with the students. Mm. They lay it all out. They do all the teaching for the day that they're needed. And then they go home and uh, they have essentially carried the load, whatever load there was, they've largely carried it for that day, for that mm. class. In a secondary environment, that ain't true. We, we well, at a lot of schools, that isn't true. Um, teachers stay up the night before while sick. Yep. trying to create what is needed for the lesson the next day while they are carking it and send it off to their relief manager. Their relief manager photocopies what needs to be photocopied and it's all dry as hell. Let's let's be very <laughs> straight about this. It, if By and large, it's really not pleasant stuff to be trucking, be trucking <laughs> yep. through as a student. I'm sorry, it isn't. And teachers, relief teachers come in and they're, for the most part, crowd control um yep. so it's it's a very different situation and so being sick as a secondary teacher is literally sitting at home worrying about whether what you produced was going to be okay because you desperately care about what the kids are doing but at the same time having zero control over what will happen yeah and so i don't know it's just one of those things that you know when you're sick from covid and i had this fight with my management team when you're sick with COVID, you don't expect to be on the receiving end of a request for relief. You're suffering from something that could make you disabled and you're being told, hold on a second, the expectation is that everybody produces this work while you're sick. Yeah. Now, from a PPTA perspective, and I went to them on this, they said, no, that's that's that, that really uh, someone needs to do a job on this and actually correct this at the school. But it's so commonplace, it's almost mm -hmm. impossible to get out of the profession. So it's, yeah. it is just what people are expected to do. I think there's um, this range of misconceptions about um, teaching. You often hear, oh, teaching is such an easy job. You get holidays off, yada, yada, yada. Um, <laughs> oh. and, <laughs> and the responses from both of the guests there uh, kind of indicate uh, the ridiculousness of that. 
uh, most teachers that I know and um, and while I was a relief teacher, I, I knew of the people that um, I was relieving for, they are doing double their paid hours a week, basically at a minimum. Yeah. Um, and you don't get a break of the holidays because you're finishing the uh, assessments from the previous term and planning out your entirety of your next term's work uh, and building that curriculum. You you don't leave the day of, like when the school finishes, when the bell rings, your day doesn't stop then. You're often going till like nine or 10 at night, uh, doing admin, doing assessment, doing extracurricular stuff. Mm. This is incredibly like demanding, demanding job. And a lot of it is purely through expectation. So uh, uh, when Adam's talking about this, it's just, just the, the culture of the industry. The in culture. Some I mean, I don't want to turn this into a, a bitch fest about um, I the problems with teaching. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. Um, you know, I, I do that every, no, I don't do it every day. But, yeah. um, <laughs> but it's, it's the reality not, of it, right? It's, it's, reality it's, whinge, of it. it's whinge bonding. But mm. I, what I will say is I'm really um, concerned about the fact that normal teaching stuff, which was already tough, is just being layered on top with other stuff and it's just getting yeah. too much. What I was actually, I'm actually, I'm going to hope I come across audibly pissed off is hearing from people in the industry or in the business of teaching who want to make it look like this is all going to come out in the wash. So case in point, this evening on Seven Sharp, the president of the uh, Secondary Principals Association, um, who just recently caught COVID, and knock on wood that that doesn't take him out, uh, said that he had mild symptoms and he's really grateful for that. And he talked about the challenges being faced by schools, and it was good that he was talking about the challenges yeah. being faced by schools, like Kelda, bro, thank you, Totoko. But at the same time, he finished his spiel by saying that the most, well, one of the most important things to him is to get the essentially to get hiring done, to bring more teachers into the country so that yeah. they can be plugged into the gaps that have formed. And I want to respond to that. And I don't mind having a conversation with this guy if he wants one, but I don't think pushing more fresh meat into the mincer is an appropriate way to deal with a problem. You know, like he, 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 he's, he appears unwilling to um and he he sits in a position of great power and influence if the secondary principals association president said um we need government help right now we need solutions for our schools we need the resurrection and reconstitution of mask mandates we need clear guidelines on what schools can do to relieve the pressure on their teachers if he said that he would move things he would shake things but his stance was what I really need is more people from outside to come mm. in and plug these holes. And I just was like, where did those holes come from, mate? Where did those holes come from, brother? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, there's a type, there's a, there's an iceberg, you know, and we're crashing into it and it's gouged a giant hole out the side of our very slow to move vessel. <laughs> and his response is, I need, up. <laughs> uh, his response is I need more sailors and, yeah. and I need more passengers on this boat. No, you don't. You need to plug the, the hole in the side of the Titanic. Yeah, get the bulkheads so, up. Yeah, get the bulkheads up. So I, don't, I, I, I want to put it out there that this is not a, hey, teaching is hard thing. It's a, we need help. And the, the, if we don't get help, the long-term impact of COVID 
And the long-term impact of the government's decision to walk away from a centralised response which made sense will be the decimation of the teaching profession in New Zealand. As people get burned out and decide to leave, as people get so sick they are unable to do the job, um, and as young people who we desperately want to look at their teachers and say, you know what, these people are doing a great job, I've got some talent, maybe I should do this, young people will look at us and go, why the, why the hell would I want to do that job? Why the hell would I want to put myself through that with employers and with a ministry that appears not to give a, a single damn about who they are, what they're putting up with, what they're coping with, and relieving them in any way, shape, or form. And all of this is happening in a year where we're expected to implement the Aotearoa history curriculum, which is <laughs> the bomb and needs to it's be put in properly. So cool. It's so cool. And we are into it. But like, we're supposed to do that. It was just to redevelop all our courses so that that can be in it. We're also dealing with the, not a minor change, they keep calling it a refresh of the New Zealand <laughs> curriculum. It ain't. It's rebuilding the New Zealand, it's practically rebuilding the New Zealand curriculum from the yeah. ground up. Yeah. And so that changes all your teaching and all your materials and everything you need as well. And the NZQA, NCEA ref changes, which are changes to numeracy, changes to literacy, changes yeah. to the standards, changes to what's being offered. And at no point is anyone going in and going, uh-oh, uh-oh, the machine is already broken. I can't <laughs> input new instructions and get it to do anything because it's already clogged with all these minced up teachers. And that's actually, that's what we need to do. We need to solve it now so that we don't ruin this thing for the next generation. We're talking about an amazing series of progressive reforms that have the potential to alter New Zealand education for so much good, for yeah. so much, so many better things for kids and for families and for culture and for our society. And, 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 and they are under huge threat as we lose people from the pro profession who we need to implement those yeah. changes, you know, that's my head in. <laughs> I guess we're, um, we're coming ish to a close, uh, but I want to do the, the most horrible bit um, oh, no. for, for this episode for this update from, from teachers. We are just at the beginning of winter. Um, and, you know, we know that other respiratory illnesses are starting to show up. Um, there's been stuff about influenza. Some people can get flu jabs. Some people can't. It's just normal colds and, and normal illnesses uh, that occur. They, they often hit the teaching profession during these times, even pre-pandemic, uh, you know, if you had a teacher in the family, the whole household would get sick because they yeah. pick stuff up off the kids. If you have kids in school, if you're not a teacher but you have kids in school, you know your kids bring home germs. You know, it's it's just how that part of society works. Uh, but with the added pressure of the pandemic, uh, we already, sounds like you're both at um, 20 to 25% of the teaching staff uh, out of order. Where, what, what's going to happen if, if we... Don't change anything if we continue with the current guidelines. Yeah. I I feel like we're we're headed for a breaking point, whether that's a couple of weeks out, whether that's next term. Um, there is gonna become a point where for some schools they literally 
don't have the teaching staff to <laughs> to like even just do the crowd control and i honestly like is the response just going to be to let schools decide to close down for a short amount of time is the response going to be shipping over emergency teachers or something um um is is the response going to be like allowing teachers who are just doing the education to come in and do relief um or something like that those are all ghoulish options that i can see being adopted but it's it's not sustainable it's not it's not just like oh we'll get through this this isn't even the last wave of this year of Omicron, not, not to mention all the other diseases, which are compounded by each wave that we go through. So I guess the, ne the next few weeks, the next few months, the, the government is going to be forced to act. I just wonder how or why. I, I'm not going to try and make predictions. I don't know if I'll be as much of a Cassandra as mm. uh, Adam has been. Um. It's, it's a unsustainable. Something needs to be done. The earlier something is done, the better, because it can yep. be better planned, better implemented. There'll be more um, force, well, not necessarily force, but more like justification behind it, as opposed to whatever they'll come up with right at the end. But I mean, looking over to our comrades um, in the public profession, like nurses and doctors, and seeing the response there, which is just sort of like run it till it breaks. Um, I'm not filled with confidence. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's tough, man. Like, uh, I am a bit of a Cassandra, but, um, it, it doesn't look, it doesn't look good. And the outlook is not great. And, and I think there are some things that could be done relatively simply, a message from the ministry to schools to say, um, take a look at your staffing. If your staff are exhausted, choose one of the following options, you know, and have a list of strategies and interventions that can be put in place and go, that's a ministry mandate. Pick from those. And then that 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 principal can go, ah, those are my marching orders. And they go off and they pick the one that works best for their specific situation. If we're going to have a system that says, this decentralized system where where different schools have got control over what happens in that environment and leadership mm. has that level of control, I would say the ministry needs to reinforce two principles, that it is their job, um, they must be looking after the health and well-being of their staff. This is a workplace health and safety issue. Make a move now. Don't wait on it. Um, because we can't we can't keep going like this. Um, and and now is the time. There is no other time for this to be fixed. Now is the time. We're going into the worst of it. We could uh, two. I'm not even going to make suggestions. The, the ministry should be making suggestions. The ministry should be talking to the Ministry of Health and getting yeah. really crisp, excellent science-backed ideas for. Um, Maybe health. don't talk to the Ministry of Health for that. Uh, honestly. Whoa, oh shit! Okay, talk, talk to, to someone, Ministry of Health insiders. Talk to an <laughs> epidemiologist. Talk to one of our many talented scientists and, and medical professionals about how do we deal with this. Um, I, I, that's what I think actually would make the most difference is if the ministry actually was a ministry and gave some goddamn dictates about what should happen. Um, I will add this: if you want relievers in this country, there are relievers. They just can't do it because they have to pay an obscene amount of money to retrain and do a dinky 
couple day long course that costs thousands to then be qualified again after taking a break from teaching. You know, there's a resource sitting there. People have reached out to me on Twitter and, and holla. I see you. You want to teach. You want to relief teach. You can't because you're apparently not qualified because you haven't taken this stupid like re-up course. Oh. Let's let's just say, you know what? It's it's an emergency. Get these people into the classroom. They did it for um, nurses, right? During the pandemic, these people came back to nursing. Yep. Yeah. People will step up into the gap if we let them. We're currently not letting them. Um I mean, the Teachers Council, that's their job. They control all of that garbage. But the Teachers Council, I mean, Teaching Council can go jump in the bin. Um, yep. You know, um, they're utterly useful, useless, and they're mostly about empire building at the moment. Here's a chance to build your empire. Show you're not a piece of crap. Show yeah. that you've actually got um, some some consideration for the hardworking teachers who are currently in the profession and those who want to return. Yeah. Let's some... Yeah. Build some community. Build some sense of pride in being a teacher. Yeah, it's going to be painful, mate. I mean, if I had any, um, if I had any play, I'd just be like, give us permission towards the end of this term to 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 have breakpoints, to have some kind of switch on, switch off with schools, to pick a day a week, to um, to to turn into an admin day, so people can recover and just like just catch up with everything that's, that's being demanded of us. Um, which we haven't been able to do because our contract has been breached by all this extra work that's been placed on us, sort it out. And and come come negotiation time for our contracts, which is now, so coming now, you, the government also needs to understand that people are pissed off. And if they don't want to be dealing with really pissed off union members who are going to throw stuff at them and make and make very difficult demands, you might want to start thinking about the health and well-being of your teachers now. You might want to take a step politically to do something now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's it's frustrating when you have to um, appeal to expediency uh, because <laughs> the other appeals just aren't cutting it. And you know, I, I think you both mentioned there as well. Like something's going to cause us to break. Something will cause it to stop. We've already seen a couple of schools in Auckland that just had to close. Um, because too much of the staff and students were just out with COVID. And that's going to happen at scale, whether it's all COVID or a mixture of illnesses, um, whether it's exhaustion, whether it's burnout, uh, whether, yeah, whether it's a range of stuff, things are going to come to a head. I don't know why the ministry, why the government um, is letting it reach that point uh, rather than, doing anything, but I guess they're just giving up all kinds of mitigations, uh, not just the ones for COVID-19. Thank you so much, both of you, for for coming and uh, sharing uh, your experiences with us. It's all good. It's been a it's been a trick, can I say it's been a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Uh, It's always good to be. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I, I really appreciate the, the chance to put this on a stage and to get a platform for this stuff. People are, people are struggling and your podcast is an opportunity to talk to people um, and express what is happening at the at the talk face where we deal with the stuff that we're dealing with. And to all the mums and dads out there, contact your teachers. Mm. Contact your teachers. Ask them how they're doing. Reach out. Say, send them an email. Are you okay? Um, do you need anything? Do you need me to talk to the board? Do you need me to call the principal? 
like start talking because maybe that's the other trick here maybe it's about maybe it's about new zealanders stepping up and saying you know what they can't do it by themselves no one's listening so we have to make hell until someone shifts something i don't know just a last idea there no, I think that's a fantastic idea. And we know organizing works. Yep. And, you know, we, we floated the idea that maybe the government just got spooked by a couple of thousand people turning up in parliament. You know what's more politically worrying? Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of parents calling the minister and saying, do something for our teachers. Yeah. Uh, organizing works, calling your representatives, uh, engaging with your school's works. Uh, if you've got the time and energy, help your teachers out uh do what you can for them uh where can people find you adam oh um don't no <laughs> you can find me on twitter um my handle is uh hello motorbike um for some reason um uh, so find me there um i'm nowhere else yeah i'd love to hear from people and if you're a teacher out there and you want to whinge bond or if, or get get or if you want to get organized you want to make some suggestions and contact me um, I'll start yelling at people at the PPTA soon. So, yeah. And how about you, pedagogy? Um, I'm, oh, wait, let me just check the actual. <laughs> what it currently is. Uh, pedagogy maxima or pedagogically maximal. Um, I'm not really mostly teaching content. I'm mostly just very terrible shit posting. But, yeah, if you want to reach out to me or follow me or anything like that, I'll be happy to have you. <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, thanks uh, both of you again so much. Um, thank you to our audience for listening. Uh, yeah, we're doing our best to, to bring as many of these incredibly important stories uh, to our audience. There's so much that is going under the radar at the moment. And, you know, we, we heard about uh, the president of the Secondary Schools Principal Association uh, had a, a headline on Seven Sharp this evening uh, let's get some teachers uh, front and center as well. Uh, share this, uh, give us a five-star rating, et cetera. Uh, let other people uh, know who have, who have kids at school or who are teachers that there is programming out there which is trying to cover this stuff. Um, look at, uh, find us on oneof200.nz for articles. Uh, and you can also find that previous podcast that we did with Adam uh, and another friend of the cast, Ross, back on March the 3rd, where we horribly uh, predicted this direction. Um, yeah, hopefully uh, what we predicted tonight is that the government is going to have to step in at some point. I you know that would be really awesome. Let's see how it goes. Keep in touch, everybody. That's been another episode of One of the Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. No, you don't hate Mondays, you hate capitalism. Oh, you don't hate.